In the rural village of Nongyai, Korat province, locals found themselves being forced out of their homes by armed men, barking orders to leave, looking at them down the barrel of their guns. The armed men were Thai soldiers. They dismantled houses, schools and the community centre. They laid waste to the tapioca fields, even ploughing the land to prevent the crops from regrowing. Villagers ran into the fields, desperate just to salvage the roots. One local told reporters at the time, quote, Soldiers were kicking and hitting people. They were dragged away, beaten up and thrown in the back of trucks like they were pigs or dogs, not humans who eat and breathe like you and me. This was a part of the Khor scheme, an ambitious project to forcibly resettle six million people from rural forest villages to the newly cleared lands. The specific shape and population sizes of these new villages had even been pre-designated by the central government in Bangkok. No more than 100 families in a ring shape or a square block. To quote the author Anne Daniya Usher, quote, no apparent allowance was made for cultural or linguistic differences, nor attention paid to the appropriateness of the soil for cultivation. Communities that had formed over decades or centuries along kinship, ethnic and linguistic lines settled according to the geographic particularities of the area were literally torn from the land. The people of Nong Yai found themselves relocated not to a newly constructed village, but to a cluster of temporary tents surrounded by armed soldiers. The new village was something between a failure of state planning and a lie. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that story, it was extremely reminiscent of the US's strategic Hamlets plan during their occupation of Vietnam in the 1960s and 70s, whereby they would force entire villages that were suspected of supporting the Viet Cong into these tightly controlled, closely monitored areas within easy reach of the occupying troops and their South Vietnamese proxies on the ground. So that strategic Hamlet program was largely conceived of by the American Advanced Research Projects Agency, that's ARPA. And ARPA's mission was to take kind of a more holistic approach to US military policy. And unlike the military, ARPA was not run by soldiers, but by bureaucrats and academics charged with drawing up the policies for the US military. So ARPA opened in an office in Thailand in 1962, the benefit of which was described by one researcher as, quote, like Vietnam, but there's no one shooting at you. The Thai office and ARPA's Thai activities were something of a petri dish for the war in Indochina. In Thailand, these experimental policies and testing the groundwork could be much more easily researched without the constant threat of Viet Cong attack. So when you think back to that eviction scene in Nong Yai village, you may think, ah, okay, I can see where he's going with this. That was obviously a ARPA policy being tested in Thailand during the Cold War. Well, that's where you'd be wrong, my friend. The eviction of Nong Yai was not in the 1960s or 70s, but in 1991, 
Aha, you see what I've done? You see how I've fooled you? Hmm. So, so then why, one may ask, was the Thai government still forcefully implementing what amounted to strategic hamlet schemes long after the war and the great and bloody assault on communism in Southeast Asia was over? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because the answer to that question will take us on something of a journey through the history of counterinsurgency in the global south, its theory, practice, implementation, and its blowback. Now, before we really get into it, I quickly want to paint another picture. And this is one of a childhood memory of my own from when I was a teenager growing up in London commuting between my broken-up parents' homes in the north and south of the city. Each week, I would pass the Haygate housing estate in Elephant and Castle, where 3,000 of London's poorest people were in the process of being evicted and redistributed to make way for a vast luxury housing development. Haygate's residents were originally promised new homes as part of the project, but these new homes were yet to be built by the time evictions began in 2007. Instead, the residents found themselves in limbo, living in temporary housing far from what was once their home. After more than a decade of fighting the eviction, eventually all of the residents who had once formed one of London's largest poor geographic communities were dispersed across the city, mostly to the outer fringes. I am of the opinion that the parallels between Haygate and Nong Yai are by no means coincidences. In this series, I intend to draw a straight line between the colonial practices of land and populace management, somewhat ironically originating in London extending through to the colonies, and then eventually U-turning back to the imperial core. So, welcome friends to our new series on counterinsurgency. I honestly have no idea how long this series is going to be. At the time of speaking, I've planned four episodes ahead, but this thing has the potential to go in so many different directions. I'm pretty confident on the final destination, but I just don't yet know the exact route we'll be going to take you there. We might even develop it into some kind of indefinite ongoing series. Let's see. And the approach that I really want to take is to follow those structures of counterinsurgency in all their forms, and also widely broaden the concept of insurgency itself. From forest farmers practicing natural farming in the hills, to mass street occupations in Bangkok, Insurgents don't necessarily need to be armed with guns and bullets. And in a similar vein, counterinsurgents don't need to be soldiers in combat fatigues. Indeed, we will see that they are all the more likely to be office bureaucrats, social scientists, or elite capitalists, drinking whiskey in old boys clubs or sitting in stuffy offices. So it's a big picture. Please bear with me, and I will try to sketch it out over the coming episodes. And of course, thank you for being here.
So it's been a while since we last spoke, I think maybe not so long for you as it has been for me because I recorded the Golden Triangle series well in advance of this one and I think I might just release this one straight off the bat. Um, I've been fine, thanks for asking. Uh, it's just about still rainy season, though it's nearly over. It's unbearably hot outside, but I'm in here with my aircon turned off, and um, I wanted to say I do hope you enjoyed the last series. I also, uh, I was going to say, I, I, I would love to hear your feedback, but I don't know if I would. You know what, if, if you want to say something nice, I, <laughs> I'd love to hear it. Um, anywho, I've got a decent mic now. You may be able to tell it's much better than the last one, so... In that vein, maybe we should maybe we should just get into it. So, to begin today, and to add a little more context, the Thai Khoshokho program that I mentioned earlier, which led to the Nongyai village being force, forcibly dispersed, was implemented as part of a much larger movement to remove villages located in forests to non-forested areas. The official reason for this was to, quote, protect the forest from the villagers. While in reality, it was widely known as a mechanism to establish timber plantations on state land, which would be administered by private capital. I'm glad to report, however, that the residents of Nong Yai, through their bravery and determination, marched back and reclaimed their land after being displaced for nine months. This is what makes Nong Yai remarkable and puts them in a small minority of villages that were able to reoccupy their lands. For every Nong Yai, there are a hundred others who never returned. Since we're already talking about forests today, I should introduce a book I'm going to be leaning very heavily on, which is A Critical History of Thai Forestry by the aforementioned and Dania Usher. Um, I really enjoyed the book. If you're listening, Ms. Usher, I thought it was thoroughly good. Um, and as I said in the intro, we're going to be following the development of both land and population management, particularly in relation to counterinsurgency. And so there's an awful lot that we can learn about both through the lens of Thai forestry. So, listener. If you're still not convinced about some of these somewhat tangentially related topics of forestry, anthropology, and counterinsurgency, please do bear with me. I promise it will come together in some form or another at some point. So, let's go back to that wretched island on which I was born, and again to London in the colonial era, where... In the mid-1800s, the British were badly in need of teak wood for ships and railroad building. By this period, British forests had long been ransacked for hardwood trees and had no form of forest management or forestry in place. Once Britain had lost access to America's forests and destroyed vast areas of timber in India, their attention turned to the hills around Burma and Siam. Siam in particular was said to hold around 25% of the world's teak hardwood. Britain's dominance of the seas 
was a key facet to their colonial holdings. As such, hardwoods were essential for shipbuilding. A typical warship lasted an average of 20 years and required about two fucking hell, 2,000 oaks of a size that corresponded to more than 200 years of growth and hardening. I don't know about you, but those numbers seem somewhat unsustainable to me. Anyway, teak wood was to become the savior of the British Empire. An American consul general based in Bangkok at the turn of the century described teak thusly. He said, quote, The most valuable lumber for shipbuilding in the world, teak does not yield to the influences of moisture and drought. It is not liable to, a, to the attack of borers and other insects. It does not split or sprawl, and, while it is strong, durable wood, it is easy to work and very light in the water. Because of its peculiar qualities that resist the influence of iron, there is no substitute for it yet discovered. It's a little bone-chilling, isn't it? To hear, you know, literal imperialists use this kind of language about natural resources. It kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. So... The word forestry, or the practice of forestry, and the word foresters, someone who practices forestry, I think has quite positive connotations for most people. Indeed, as a very, very young boy, I lived in the, the very remote countryside in England, and my, essentially, grandfather was a forester there. And, you know, he managed the forest. It, it sounds rather nice, doesn't it? Um, but when we, and also this book has really changed my view of that, by the way. Um, but when we, 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 we use the word forestry, we're simply referring to forest management, be it for conservation or extraction. Um, so it, it can, it really goes both ways. And as I said, Britain had no formalized forestry tradition to draw from in this era, in this colonial era, and was rapidly facing this timber crisis. The British domestic model was clearly unsustainable for the future of the empire, even to implement in the colonies. They were therefore forced to look elsewhere for this expertise. They found it in the area of Central Europe that is today Germany, where the science of forestry had been developed over the previous century. German forestry was specifically designed so as to produce lumber. What this meant practically was, when logging, to replace a logged area with a near monoculture of trees with very low biological diversity, so as to be the most effective and efficient method in generating a consistent long-term timber supply for the future. Sounds very German, doesn't it? Um, this was also predicated on state control of forests as an important factor to consider later in our notions of colonial land management. So, the British brought in prominent German foresters such as Dietrich Brandis, hope that's right, oh, I, don't, I don't really care actually, uh, to manage their timber extraction and forestry programs in the colonies of India and Burma. While in Siam, British state timber operations were granted concessions by local lords to manage their forests. This approach 
put the ecology and culturally diverse forests of Asia under the same forestry practices of the increasingly monocultural German forests. Something like putting schnitzel in your sontam. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Um, Brandis began bringing colonial forestry officers from Siam, Burma and India to visit German forests so as to observe them and then mimic the forestry practices. Originally trained as a botanist, Brandis was well versed in the rich biology of Asia's teak-bearing forests, even having a seeming fascination and admiration for their diversity. How then he was able to consciously administratively destroy this richness in the name of monoculture, we will never truly know. He also worked to bring this forest land under the direct control of the imperial state, a kind of colonial enclosure of the commons which criminalized any forest usage by people other than those logging on behalf of the British Empire. This method of enclosure is something that we're going to have to return to and explore kind of deeper in the future episodes. Uh, it's a process that unsurprisingly becomes quite a big factor in insurgency and as such counterinsurgency. Also the enclosure process in the colonies and the semi-colonial concessions like in Siam uh, follow entirely different methods from that of those uh, British enclosures, which is where it originated. So I think I'm going to have to dust off my old copy of Chomna Sakdina Thai, uh, which is <laughs> terribly exciting, and I'm genuinely not kidding. I'm that much of a sicko. Anyway. Brandis's successor in India, another German, Wilhelm Schlich, Schlich? Yeah, whatever wrote a manual of forestry, which was for decades used as the authoritative text on forestry worldwide. And here I will read from Anne Usher's description of that manual. Quote, the hair-raising language of colonial foresters reflected their preoccupation with commercial timber production to the exclusion of other elements of the forest. The fourth volume of Slicht's manual, for example, entitled Forest Protection, includes the following chapters. Protection of the forest against animals. Protection of the forest against deer and wild pigs. Protection of the forest against rodents. Protection of the forest against birds. The notion of forest was clearly interchangeable with timber resources. It followed that principal, valuable, and desirable species were exclusively timber trees, judged solely by their market price and bearing no relation to their ecological or other aspects. Non-timber products were, at best, secondary. Areas that might for local people represent an important supply of medicinal or food plants could readily be dismissed as inferior or wasteland by foresters. If the goal of the forester was to create a normal wald, it followed that the diverse forest that had not benefited from a forester's intervention was abnormal and chaotic. Schlich's successor, uh, Robert Scott Troop 
liken the forester's mission to the burden of missionaries bringing the light of civilization to unruly savages. Quote, or quote within a quote, the attainment of the normal forest from the abnormal condition of our existing natural forests as a rule involves a certain temporary sacrifice in introducing order out of chaos, he said. Arguing specifically against community ownership of forests, William Schlisch pointed out in Forest Policy in the British Empire, the first volume of his manual, that, quote, the personal interests of the members of the village are likely to injure the sustained yield of the forest. The poorer members especially urge the more extended utilization than the forest can stand permanently. So, to specify it a little more, or to, or to contextualize this a little more, sorry. In 1855, the Bowering Treaty between Britain and Siam was signed. This treaty was based on the gunship diplomacy of the Unequals Treaty between Britain and China, which put Siam on the verge of British colonization in all but name. Essentially, the British Empire controlled vast swathes of Siam's economy via the ports and benefited from extraterritoriality in the cities, meaning that the British could not be tried under the Siamese legal system. On previous episodes, I have argued that the Bowering Treaty was an integral part of the development of capitalism in Siam. And here we can clearly observe this via the literal process of teak logging. Again, I'll quote from the same book. Quote, the process of teak extraction involves a long series of steps. After identifying the trees, they were girdled, meaning a groove was cut around the trunk, which killed the tree and allowed them to dry out, thus making it lighter. The trees were left standing up for two years and were then felled and dragged by elephant to the banks of the nearest stream. When the next rainy season came, if the waters rose high enough, they could be floated to one of the northern rivers, the Ping, Wang, Yom or Nan, bound together in rafts and sent on to the Chao Priya River and then downstream to Bangkok. The average time between girdling and the arrival in Bangkok was reported to be about five years, but a few dry seasons could slow the process by about two or three years. In the worst case, the whole process could take as long as 15 years. It is therefore not difficult to see why huge financial backing was necessary for logging to be profitable. These kind of complex spreadsheets, this is me talking now, uh, complex spreadsheets of you know loans, debts, projected yields and creditors, these are like the real building blocks of capitalism, right? And they were first developed in those Italian merchant states and then in Amsterdam and perfected in London when they were then exported on to these feudal or Sakdina economy of Siam. And so this kind of logging, mass, mass extraction would literally be impossible without the complexities of Western capitalism. So in the late 1800s, British foresters were put in charge of forestry in all of the concessions in Siam and acted as advisors to the Siamese state. There, they set up a forest bureaucracy 
as an identical model of the British colonial systems one, based on Brandis's German forestry system. It was then, during this period, that Siam's forests were being ruthlessly plundered by British timber companies. To quote Anne Usher again, The real lasting impact of the style of forestry introduced at the end of the 19th century was not systematic forestry use, but rather a political system. This is important. Uh, this is, uh, keep quoting. Where the, forest, where the Royal Forestry Department eventually claimed a monopoly over more than 40% of the country's land area and criminalized millions of people who just so happened to be living there. Again, this was not a forestry policy, but a political system for land management. And also here I just want to say a quick apology and also a thank you to Anne Usher for ripping ripping off so much of this section from her book. Um, but such is a necessity when dealing with topics that suffer so little interrogation. So again, thank you and sorry. Continuing then. <laughs> Later in life, perhaps Brandis's conscience caught up with him as he seems to have changed his tone quite substantially, arguing for limitations of logging and allowing local people to self-administer areas of forest near their settlements. Of course, British authorities did not share Brandis's views and his proposals were entirely rejected. To finish off reading Anne Usher's work, I'm going to read from one more section. Quote, Forest law in Burma and India as well as Siam, defined forests as state land. Foresters were therefore in their full right to forbid villagers from destroying state property. But this was practically impossible because foresters lacked the manpower and budgets to patrol such immense areas. Moreover, local people could cause all manner of damage if they were pushed too far. Brandis was opposed to the complete prohibition of shifting cultivation, fires, and collection of, quote, minor forest produce. He warned prophetically that, in the long run, forestry cannot succeed unless the people who live in and near the forest are for it and not against it. He wrote that it was quite out of the question to prohibit shifting cultivation without special permission over an extensive area, nor was this contemplated. Such measures would produce a most harassing and vexatious interference with the inhabitants of the forests without any corresponding advantages. With uncanny foresight, he even warned in the 1870s that the annoyance to the inhabitants by the maintenance of restrictions over the whole area of land and large forest tracts will be permanent. These warnings went unheeded and the forestry's tasks came to focus on extending state control, transforming the physical landscape and limiting customary rights as far as politically feasible without invoking serious rebellion. And here it is at our first mention of serious rebellion. So we'll take a little break. In 1895, 
A British forester named Herbert Slade was appointed by King Chulalongkorn as a chief advisor to Siam's forest management programs. While Slade came from the Anglo-Germanic forestry tradition, he was something of a renegade on two fronts. The first was that he was one of the original Western foresters to recognize the necessity of wildfires towards forest health, suggesting against solid orthodoxy that fire prevention schemes in teak logging areas be suspended as forest fires aren't intense enough to burn down teak trees. On the second front, however, probably more significantly to our story, was his role in the real politique of the region. For over a century, the French and the British had competitively jockeyed for more control over the nominally independent Siam. The British were always a few steps ahead, and they had used the work of special advisors like Slade to push their interests in the kingdom. By the time of Slade's appointment, Britain had firmly established their control on the Shan Hills following the Third Anglo-Burmese War. In doing so, extending into areas controlled by the lords of Chiang Mai, who themselves were vassals of Siam. British timber firms were acting as if they had already annexed the territories. A secret report by the British Council in Chiang Mai from 1902 suggests that Chulalongkorn had serious grounds for concern, to quote the British. The extinction of Siam as an independent power is merely a question of time. Situated as Siam is weak, a, scarce, a scarcely civilized state, hemmed in between two strong colonizing powers, its fate is inevitable. Slade, who followed Brandis's German political doctrines, pushed Chulalongkorn to bring Siam and subsequently Chiang Mai's forests under the direct ownership of the state, as had been done in Germany and the British colonies in India and Burma. This process of Bangkok taking direct control of forest lands to the north seemed to run against the interests of the expansionist British in the area and contributed in no small part to the complete absorption of the Chiang Mai or Lana kingdom into Siam. While Slade genuinely seemed to be trying to slow down the rate of extractive logging in the north, as we've discussed many times before on this show, it's one thing to write laws in Bangkok, but enforcing them in, a hill, in the hills is, is an entirely different matter. And British logging continued largely unabated. By the late 1920s, though Siam's forest lands were officially under state control, the Royal Forestry Department held logging concessions on only 1% of its teak forests, while European firms controlled 85%. As such, Slay's legacy in Siam, along with King Chulalongkorn's, was not just a legacy of forest management, but one of state control and ownership of periphery lands, just like the forests in Nongyai. Now that we've established the colonial ideology and methods of control of forest land, we have to pivot somewhat to the forest dwellers who actually lived in those forests and depended on them for their livelihoods. European foresters had long despised those forest inhabitants. Nothing drew their ire more than the slash-and-burn system of agriculture, which I mentioned in the previous series. However, I fear I wasn't able to adequately explain it then, so I'll give it another shot now.
And to preface this, I think it's important to point out the practice of slash and burn is something of a gray spectrum. That is to say, some groups practice this method more intensely and in different formats to others. To the point that it became almost impossible to clearly distinguish what I'm even talking about at some points. So I will follow, follow my uh, Virgil guide for this series in Anne Usher and use the example she did using the Dangjia method. I think, I don't know how it's pronounced. I think it's a Korean word, Dangjia. I'm going to go for that. So the so-called Dangjia method practiced in Eastern Burma and Western Thailand, typically among the Karen people, involved rotational shifting cultivation, controlled burning of forests and fallowing periods for fields. More specifically, this is a mixture of small-scale natural farming techniques, where fields are created by controlled fires in forested areas. The fire, rather than ruining the land, as the colonialists always saw it, helped to fertilize the soil. Crops would then be planted and rotated over various seasons. So one season, let's say you plant corn, and another season beans and so on. You know, you rotate it. And after a few seasons, you fallow the field, meaning you just leave it alone without tilling the soil so as to recover that organic matter. Another technique during this fallow period is to plant cover crops like clover to refill the nitrogen levels in the soil, which will increase the soil recovery rate compared to just leaving it alone. Furthermore, the surrounding forest acted as an essential source of food and materials via hunting and gathering. Now, this system can also be adapted to include growing timber. Uh, for example, after a few crop rotations, teak trees or other hardwoods can be planted in and amongst the cropland, coexisting with it. Uh, as Herbert Slade eventually realized, forest fires do not actually destroy teak trees. As such, there is no contradiction here between natural forest agricultural practices and timber production when practiced in a well-balanced method. Another key benefit to this system is flexibility. If there's a sudden population increase in the village, say the addition of three or four more families for whatever reason, extra land can quickly be utilized into the system. Indeed, I've heard accounts of more fields being created just to serve the purpose of producing more food for annual festivals where they may have more visitors. The same goes for decreases in production necessity, as these fields can rapidly be reabsorbed back into the forest. And anyone who's lived on the edge of a rainforest before will know exactly how fast that reabsorption can be. As I said, this is just one broad example of forest agriculture and is practiced in varying ways across the region. Ultimately, though, the point I'm trying to make is that there have obviously been populations living, farming, and thriving in the forests for millennia without causing degradation to the forests. The rather obvious truth was unfortunately lost on the Anglo-German foresters, one of whom described the Daunjia system thusly, quote, A pernicious system, the most wasteful of all methods of forest utilization. 
thousands of square miles of valuable forests of the country have been laid to waste by the system, the formerly fine timber forest being replaced by worthless scrub. Needless to say, the worthless scrub that is being described here is likely fallow fields in the process of regenerating. It's also possible that this worthless scrub is caused by excessive taxation demands imposed by the British, which forced locals to clear more forests than they had done previously. It's not entirely clear from that quote, but what is clear, and should have been clear at the time as well, is that those living in those valuable teak-rich forests did not simply show up there at the same time as the British colonists. They, and the teak that had been there for centuries, like need I even say it, it seems so obvious, but clearly, the presence of people living and practicing agriculture in the forest was not detrimental to teak, as evidenced by all the fucking teak that had brought the colonialists to the forests in the first place. Fuck. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> They're just such obnoxious fucking idiots, aren't they? Uh, anyway, I think, I think what is significant here and explains this supposed idiocy is not the pure naivety of the European foresters, but the fact that the presence of people living in the forest was becoming increasingly problematic for timber extraction. The problem of local forest people can only be perceived as an issue when we assess the productivist approach to land and population management within the context of surplus extraction. To put it more simply, those local people were only a problem because they hindered profits. Their largely localized agricultural activity was not productive to the state nor to capital, and their presence got in the way of the extraction of precious timber, which of course was highly profitable. Here I'm going to use a word for the first time on this series, uh, and that is which the series is predicated, the word insurgent. The way of life of forest people was in itself insurgent towards the expansionist capitalist interests. In the strictest sense, it was the initial spread of capitalism and the state into the forests that was at first an insurgency, one waged against lives of trees, plants, animals, insects, and the native human population. In an ideal world, this would be the conceptual framework by which we could analyze and depict both insurgency and counterinsurgency. However, we do not live in an ideal world, and as such, I think the best way to perceive this spread of the state and capital is that of an invading army and an insurgent native population. Let us remain then with the Karen people whom, it should be pointed out, are currently waging an armed insurgency against the Burmese state at the time of speaking, and have been doing so for quite some time. But for the moment, we have to remain within the colonial era of Anglo-German forestry. In British Burma and India, and the Siamese concessions, 
Local people put up a formidable challenge to the imperialist efforts to expand their extractive policies. Initially, the British would utilize local forest people's labor and local knowledge to help with this extraction. Once resistance started to mount, many would simply flee. Others would go on strike, and some even attacked colonial or logging officials. Some other rather ingenious tactics included the destruction of young teak trees to give the appearance that the area was not well suited for teak growth. Here I will quote from the report of one forester in British India who wrote in 1916, quote, The notion obstinately persists that the government is taking away their forest from them and is robbing them of their own property. The, no oh my God. the notion seems to have grown from the complete lack of restriction or control over the use by the rural people of wasted land and forest during the first 80 years after the British occupation. In rural communities, there appears no difference between the uncontrolled use and proprietary rights. My best efforts, however, have, I fear, failed to get the people generally to grasp the changing conditions or to believe in the historical fact of government ownership. Ugh. The historical fact of government ownership. Oh, fuck you. Such an absurd, indignant claim, my lord. Okay, anyway, I'm gonna, you know what, have a drink. Mm. Cool down to cool down i told you it's hot it's hot today I'm getting hot so while these populations put up what i am sure was a brave and noble fight the fact remained that at this time they were sparsely populated disorganized and realistically no match for the might of the british empire and the voracious tendrils of capital so as we approach the turn of the century the renegade Herbert Slade, advisor to King Chulalongkorn, fancied himself something of a conservationist, as I mentioned earlier. He certainly recognized the damage done by intensive logging, and so began concocting the seemingly contradictory dual ideology of a forest practice that permitted extractive logging and forbid common people from using their lands for their livelihood or to put it more simply, to protect the people's forest from the people, while also protecting profits. The idea here was that it was the local people who damaged the forest, and while logging too was damaging, if the rapacious natives could be contained, all-round forest degradation would cease. And so, the Royal Forest Department of Siam was inaugurated, with Slade serving as the first director of the department. In 1899, all forests were declared government property, and all logging without payment to the Royal Forest Department was prohibited. No thought, of course, was given to the people who lived there, and if any thought was given, it was probably good. Now we can get them the fuck off of our timber plantations. The turn of the century was without question a watershed moment in Siamese history. As King Chulalongkorn's Anglo-centric state centralization really kicked into high gear. 
King Chulalongkorn was, by the way, the prince from The King and I, if that helps contextualize this for anyone. I actually haven't seen it as far as I'm aware. It's banned in Thailand still, which is quite funny that that's the forbidden knowledge. Um, anyway, more, more importantly to our story, Chulalongkorn did more than any monarch to push Siam into the new modern global capitalist system. And in doing so, he largely abolished much of the existing Sakdina feudal system, which, to his credit, largely put an end to slavery and serfdom in the kingdom, allowing those peasants to have their labor extracted not by feudal lords, but by capitalist bosses, many of whom were, of course, the former feudal lords. Despite inching towards the modern era, it would still be another few decades before teak was no longer essential for shipbuilding and train tracks, both of which made up the twin arms of Britain's imperial extractionist infrastructure. The Kingdom of Siam was undergoing significant upheaval. Its primary source of wealth, its forests were being pillaged by the colonial powers. The local lords who once ruled the forested lands of the periphery were being muscled out, Bangkok had laid claim to vast swaths of the country. The royal household, while remaining nominally independent of the European imperialists, had studied them closely. They had literally copied and pasted their doctrines and legislature into Siam's DNA. Thanks partly again to Mr. Slade. As such, Bangkok exported Siamese administrators to those formerly distant peripheries. And now, due to the advent of advanced technologies like the telegraph machine, they could be overseen by the throne and its newly colonial modelled bureaucracies. It is now that we'll have to return to the writings of that old German forester, Herr Brandisch, who got us started down this long trail. And I will repeat the extract of his warnings made many, many years before. Quote, Local people could cause all manner of damage if they are pushed too far. In July of 1902, Siamese policemen attempted to arrest a group of mine workers at a camp in what is today Prayer Province. They accused the workers of being members of a group of known bandits responsible for several robberies in the area. The workers resisted, killing several officers and forcing the police to retreat. Perhaps they indeed were the bandits, perhaps not. The authorities returned, this time with a force of 80 soldiers and policemen, as well as war elephants, horses and heavy weapons. The workers, however, were well prepared. They ambushed the Siamese in a small ravine. It was a massacre. They killed 16 Siamese and liberated their weapons, horses and elephants. The surviving officials fled towards Lampang, while the newly armed workers knew they had little choice now but to engage in a full-blown rebellion. 
They marched into Prayer City, where they attacked the police station, storming it, killing yet more Siamese officers and seizing the weaponry. From the police station, as their numbers grew, with local villagers joining the rebels, they ransacked Prayer's governor's mansion, butchering those inside. The governor himself survived, having already fled. They cut telegraph lines down and freed prisoners from the city's jails, further increasing their numbers. Having captured the town, they put a bounty of 400 baht on the heads of Siamese officials. 20 were captured and executed, including the governor, who was found hiding out in the countryside. A man known as Pakamong had taken charge of the rebels. He himself was a teak worker, originally from a minor noble family in the British Shan territories. He had come to prayer with the logging company and now found himself heading the rebellion, drawing up plans to liberate other cities from Siamese control. The rebels split into two forces. One marched south to face the approaching Siamese army head to head, while the other marched west to liberate the city of Lampang. Panic set in among the Siamese administrators and their British advisers. Both groups of rebels, seemingly overconfident after their relatively easy rout of the Siamese in prayer, were crushed when they came up against the might of the mobilized, modernized, and well-organized Siamese army. Pakamon was killed. Many others were executed and many more fled. Prayer was recaptured. The rebellion, however, fled to the forest to the border region between French Indochina and Siam. There they went underground, orchestrating raids from the forest into Siamese territory. An insurgency had been birthed in the forests of Southeast Asia, just as Mr. Brandis had forewarned.